Psychic Self-Defense, Part 6 Storytellers Human beings have existed for about 200,000 years. As far as we can discern and speculate, based on the still sparsely studied evidence of antiquity, we have been communicating through abstract language for about 70,000 years. So, just more than a quarter of that time. Based on evidence gleaned from archaeological exploration, blended and distorted though it may be by the shuffling of imperial exploration and colonial exploitation, we can tell that we humans have been living together in permanent settlements with complex social structures for around 12,000 years. So that's a pretty small fraction of the 200,000 years we've been around. And we have been mass communicating for around 5,500 years. By that I mean communicating beyond our immediate social group through writing down language and you know, making, making our communications somehow permanent. Through the sacred and precious recordings of religious texts etched into stone or scratched onto vellum, the words of ancient scholars have been passed to us through time. By a reading of the sagas and mythologies of Ireland and the wider world, we can see a common tendency amongst the peoples of the world to tell their own story first to themselves and then to their neighbours. Sometimes those stories were shared in mutual support and admiration, respect and appreciation, and some kind of understanding of a common kinship. Other times, they're shared out of fear and disdain, distrust and confusion, with the goals of manipulation and degradation. These patterns of interaction still play out in our own time. Sometimes we mass communicate to connect and share, and sometimes it's an act of war. Religious and political groups use stories as a powerful tool for spreading and developing their ideologies, for recruiting and converting, as well as for attacking and denouncing. For as long, or maybe even longer, than we've been writing down and disseminating our stories, we've been writing down cold facts. The oldest known text is an ancient Sumerian tablet from the city of Uruk, modern-day Iraq. It's an accountant's ledger, recording who owed what to who. The recording of factual and statistical information has been an essential ingredient of civilised cultures since our ancestors first put seed to soil in the Fertile Crescent, presently known as the Middle East, all those thousands of years ago. In the meantime, especially over the last few hundred years and most especially in the last couple of decades, the human capacity for creating and distributing written or otherwise recorded language information has boomed. Now, the printing press was only invented, what, like 500 years ago or something like that? And yeah, that remained fairly simple, I suppose, relatively simple up until the beginning of the 20th century, or the late 1800s, and I mean, the internet only became ubiquitous in the last 20 years. So basically what I'm getting at is in, in, in terms of using language, we haven't been using language for, you know, it's just over a quarter of our existence. As far as we know, we've only been using written language for a very small fraction of our existence, and we've been using this kind of ubiquitous information exchange via the internet for a very tiny fraction of our existence so but we've existed as as a species more or less as we are for 200,000 years so we're, we're still very much adjusting to this information density that we're dealing with and this spreading of stories and, and information newspapers tv and, and radio news news websites apps are they storytellers or fact recorders or both when most of us think of the news, we think of it as a, as a tool for spreading important information. 
for keeping the general public informed of important events and developments in the world. But who gets to decide what is important and what is newsworthy? We rely on news organisations to give us the news. To, when we, we put our trust into them that they'll, they'll honestly and meticulously record important events and tell us about them. Here in Ireland, like much of the Western world, where we have a political system of representative democracy, the news media is seen as an indispensable part of what makes democracy work. It's an essential ingredient, we seem to think, for a free society. Both the state-owned and private media corporations are vested with the responsibility to inform the public of what is happening in the world. What is that news for? What's, it, what's its function? Is it for reporting the facts of a given situation? And making sure people know the truth? Does it actually do that? Many critical analyses of news media show us that the news acts as a propaganda machine, a method by which those who are in a position of power in a certain country or region can control the thoughts of the population. And this doesn't mean there's some kind of secret technology or magic at play that they're directly controlling our minds. But through deciding on our behalf what we should pay attention to and presenting only a limited framing of the events, they can shape public opinion to their own ends. It's a cliché to quote George Orwell, but I will anyway, because it bears repeating. He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. I don't know what work of Orwell's that's from. I know it from a Rage Against the Machine song, but Orwell said it anyway. And what he means by this, at least my interpretation of it, is that whoever is in power now will use a selective story of history and of world events to justify their own power and to vilify their opponents. And by doing so, will set the course we're on as a society or even as a civilization. So we have to ask who gets to make these decisions and is their ability to make these decisions justified? We're expected to put our trust in these increasingly centralized and monopolized companies. But we must ask the question, why? Why do we trust them to be unbiased? Can a state media company really be trusted to report on the government that funds it or the allies of that government? Can a privately owned news corporation be trusted to accurately report on the activities of the companies that fund it or the political parties it's allied with? The news, far from being simply a public service, could be more accurately described as a means for the politically powerful to promote their worldview. Where do you get your news from? Do you deliberately seek out sources you trust? Or do you simply rely on the sources closest to you, the ones that appear on the shelves in the newsagent or that present themselves to you when you open whatever web browser or app you favour? I'm here to tell you what you probably already know on some level, that if you're getting your news exclusively or predominantly from your social media newsfeed or from one or two particular newspapers, TV or radio stations or websites, then it's extremely unlikely that you have an accurate picture of what's happening in the wider world or even in your own country. I'm hoping that after listening to this, if you're not already doing it, you'll be encouraged to take a little extra time in your news consumption to deliberately seek out different sources and to critically analyse the sources that you are consuming. Henry Gibson, 1970, said, tie yourself to a star and sail with it. Every person must have a star, an ideal, to which he clings. The ideal may not be realized today or tomorrow, but you must have an ideal which will carry you forward in life, will inspire you to do deeds and acts. Ultimate 
ideal, the ultimate concept of all of these people was ultimate human justice for everybody. And that is the ideal that anarchism stands for. When journalists are accused of editorialising, it generally means that they're presenting opinion as objective fact. But the truth is, every media source has an editorial position. This means that whether it's a humble one-person podcast like this one, or a large, heavily staffed media organisation, it will have a subjective, ethical and political viewpoint that is peculiar to it. Some will be centrist, some will lean left or right, or be all the way left or all the way right. In the interest of full disclosure, so you can better judge the information and arguments I'm presenting you with, you should know that I am a leftist and an internationalist. This means that I believe the many problems we face as a society and as a people are preventable and solvable through the mass mobilisation of human decency, working class strength and the engaging of collective wisdom. Now that may sound idealistic, but I believe that if you take a look at the history of our species, you'll find many examples of these potentialities. The primary function of this podcast has always been to focus on grassroots social movements that are at play in Ireland and the wider world. But in this episode I'm focusing on, on media bias and I'll be mainly looking at media coverage here in Ireland, RTE, media, RTE news coverage uh, of U- Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is the current big news story. Oh, it's kind of drifting out of the news cycle now because this is how the news cycle works. It, it, it moves from hot topic to hot topic. Um, but for the last number of months it has been the big news story. Um, so because of that I did my best to find out about grassroots leftist movements in Ukraine and what perspectives they are putting forward. I found one in particular that I want to draw attention to is a, a network of support, uh, a support network called Operation Solidarity, seemed to comprise uh, mainly of uh, anarchists and other leftists, and they're focusing on getting medical medical supplies and food to those who are fighting or, or living near the front lines. Um, if you want to donate to them, you can find them online, just search for Operation Solidarity Ukraine. Uh, there's an anarchist group as well called Rev Dia and the Black Headquarter who've kind of joined together and formed explicitly left-wing fighting units um, to resist the invasion together. Um, there's another pan-leftist organisation called Social Movement who seem to mostly draw from the trade union movement and uh, the leftist political parties that have been banned in Ukraine, more on that later. Um, and I found a journal called Commons or Common Struggle, I'm not sure exactly how the title translates. Um, and many of these people, particularly the trade unionists, are in the tough position now of challenging their government's policies while at the same time fighting alongside the government's army to defend themselves and their homes from the Russian invaders. The main reason I want to direct support to these groups in particular is that I've seen a number of reports of international volunteers being sent to the front line without adequate weapons and armour uh, and members of the territorial defence being forced to fight without proper supplies even though, as we're told, the US and other countries are sending billions in military aid there. Um, and these groups are kind of tackling those issues. There's also the presence of the Azov Battalion and right sector to contend with. You know, there's a strong far-right fascist movement in Ukraine uh, that are attempting to guide, and in some ways are guiding Ukrainian mainstream politics. Um, although there's different perspectives on that, I'll talk about that later as well. Um, but for now, it's enough to say that they they pose a significant threat to the people of Ukraine. The, the, not as much as the Russian army does, but arguably they'll, they'll be continue to be a big problem in the future in, in a more complex way. Um, you know, they're out-and-out fascists and they've, they've been accused of using their own people as human shields, of threatening to shoot people if they try to leave, of commandeering people's homes. Um, you know, there's several videos of them greasing bullets with pig fat because they want to kill Chechens who are mainly Muslim. They're bad bastards, basically. So I want to be absolutely sure that any kind of aid being sent to Ukraine doesn't reach any of those guys. 
and I want to draw your attention to them in, in the hopes of drawing some support for these left-wing groups because if you're supporting them, then you're support, supporting local resistance to Azov Battalion and the right sector and other far-right groups who will continue to be a significant problem after the invasion. So it's probably more of a problem because uh, people are, it's kind of galvanising support for them. Um, and locally here in Ireland, I'd like to draw your attention to Shannon Watch, who for years have been monitoring US activity, uh, US army activity in Shannon Airport and advocating for peace and Irish neutrality. I think it's especially important at this time to support these groups as Irish neutrality is under threat now. Um, there's arguments against neutrality cropping up in the media more and more. Uh, members of Shannon Watch and the broader anti-war movement are still frequently in court for the actions they take against the US Army activity in Shannon Airport. And you can find update, updates on their website, just uh, look for Shannon Watch, I think it's shannonwatch.org. Now, if you look into these groups I just mentioned, and I strongly recommend you do, you might notice a contradiction between some of them. The Ukrainian groups I've just voiced some support for are in some cases calling for support from the West in the form of weapons and military equipment, while Shannon Watch are calling for peace and non-interference. You'd be correct to point out that those two things are incompatible, and it doesn't make sense really for me to support both. And this is something I've been struggling with, I'm trying to make sense of it for myself, and I don't have a very clear answer. Um, it's, I, I think the situation is very complicated and I don't really know where I stand on it. I think I've, I've probably been looking into this too much over the last couple of months because there's not that much I can do on the ground here materially. Um, but anyway, that's not, that's, you know, I'm, I'm against Ireland joining NATO, I'm against Ireland becoming, getting rid of its neutral status. Um, obviously, I'd prefer a diplomatic and peaceful conclusion as soon as possible, but I also support people on the ground their right to call for assistance in whatever way is appropriate to them um, I don't feel like I'm in a position to criticise them for doing that um, but anyway that, that's just me that's not what I want to focus on with this episode I'm focusing on the media and how it operates specifically how the Irish state media has been covering this, this conflict uh, but I thought it was important to be as upfront and explicit as possible about what my position is on what my opinions are because I'm not going to pretend to be objective you know my aim with this is to encourage you the listener to practice critical thought and examination of the news you consume but I can't make any claim to be objective you know I have my own opinions my own principles and core values which I don't have any intention of trying to hide uh, but I hope that by sharing some of these perspectives that you'll go off and do your own exploring and keep this expansion and dissemination of knowledge rolling through your immediate surroundings that's the most important thing that we can all do, I think, whether it's with this issue or anything else. You know, go and explore different perspectives for yourself. Encourage inquiry and discussion among your friends and family. Take a little extra time when you're consuming news to investigate your source and investigate their sources. Keep digging, but try to avoid falling down any rabbit holes. Anyway, that's uh, the voice of Vladimir Putin, who has to be the greatest uh, enemy number one of the people of Earth um, this uh, Tuesday morning. There's no question about that. I've been tuned into waiting for a Bond villain or something much more deep and down there, but actually it wasn't there at all. Academic studies and scientific experimentation and analysis in the field of psychology teach us that human beings tend to use mental shortcuts when trying to understand complex topics. The psychologist and economist Daniel Kahneman made some significant progress in understanding how we solve problems. He divided our cognitive processes into two systems. Right? The first is unconscious, it's quick, it's intuitive, emotional, effortless, and it's error prone, prone to make mistakes. The second is conscious, 
So it's slow, rational, more logical. It takes effort and it involves complicated decisions. We're much more likely to be relying on the first intuitive, quick, unconscious system when we're consuming news because the sheer glut of information there is in the world and because of how little leisure time is left to us outside of work. We are therefore more likely to rely on mental shortcuts when we're consuming the news. You know, mental shortcuts can be useful when we're trying to learn something difficult. They can help us make rapid progress and then fill in the blanks later. You know, this can be something relatively harmless, like deciding what kind of biscuits to buy or something, I don't know. But it could also involve the, f- the formation of opinions. When we're told something over and over again, and presented with only a limited selection of the facts, this becomes our total understanding of the situation. When we're evaluating evidence and trying to judge a given situation, whether it's a government's policy decision or an international conflict, we rely on these mental shortcuts more often than not. This allows media companies to frame the stories they tell in ways that will seem familiar and unchallenging to us, that will reinforce our biases and build a collective worldview upon them. We can call this systemic bias. Systemic bias prevents people from making optimal choices because it relies on previously held beliefs and biases. The good news is that the very same studies that teach us this also teach us that it is possible through conscious thought to work beyond our initial judgement. Intuition is a powerful aspect of our humanity that can guide us, but we need to be careful and watchful that our intuitive judgments are guided by our free observation of all the facts rather than by a stereotype or an overtold story. We are daily being told stories about the wider world, about places that most of us have never been to and probably weren't thinking about too much only a couple of weeks ago. It'll stand to us in the long run if we do our best to bring a multi-perspective, three-dimensional view of those places into our minds. Our core values will make it easier for us to believe certain things over others, and at the same time, how often we're told a story about a people will colour our perception of those people. Kahneman wrote that intuitive decisions will be shaped by the accessibility of different features of the situation. Highly accessible features will influence decisions, while features of low accessibility will be largely ignored. This is known as a framing effect. Studies into framing effects in the media reveal a number of biases such as coverage bias, so unbalanced amounts of news given to one subject over another, for example loads of coverage for Ukraine compared to Syria for example, or Palestine, uh, gatekeeping bias, so which is the selection or deselection of particular stories, uh, or the bias of the journalist's own opinions. This agenda setting theory suggests that media companies have a lot of power in telling us what to think about. By selecting and highlighting certain events, and making connections between them, they can promote whatever interpretation they want to. So, because we live in a world where the news we hear about is chosen by somebody else, usually somebody who works for a powerful organisation, we need to consciously focus our unconscious thoughts and responses and pay attention to what's being heavily promoted in the story and we need to go looking for what might be left out or what's de-emphasised in the story. And that takes a lot of time. So we rarely make judgments on world events or even in our own countries or communities, having all the information. Powerful forces control what information we have access to. We need to work to get access to all the information. We rarely do that though, we mostly don't have time. It takes a lot of time and effort to seek out different sources and spend proper time digesting them. The internet can be a powerful tool to do that, but it's also dangerous territory. There's so much information there, it's very hard to verify what's true, there's lots of distractions. You know, there's just 
anyone can post anything to the internet so anyone can make up any old nonsense and throw it up there and as a result we're living through a crisis of truth and trust Russian forces have launched what appears now to be a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, with missile and airstrikes against targets across the country, including the capital, Kyiv, prompting the NATO alliance to... The unfolding invasion of Ukraine by the Russian state army has me glued to the radio, to the TV and the internet. Since February the 26th, I've been heavily addicted to news media and the insatiable hunger for pundits and their never-ending nonsense doesn't seem to be diminishing in me at all, really. I'm not going to try and summarise the conflict going back to 2014, going back even further really. You know, Russia and Ukraine have a long, complicated, intertwined history. Um, there's plenty of writing and sources on that available already. And I'm going to try as much as possible to avoid giving too much of my own take and opinions on it because there's already far too many Western bloggers and pundits talking about it as though they actually have a clue, as though we actually have a clue. Um, you know, there's conflicting stories, the different, so many different points and there's plenty of conspiratorial rhetoric going around as well. You know, was the, the Maidan uprising of 2014 a genuine grassroots movement or was it totally planned by the US? Uh, was the secession of the two breakaway republics in the east, Donetsk and Luhansk, the result of grassroots separatist agitation or are they completely just Russian puppet states, pure and simple? You know, probably neither of those takes give the full picture. But much of the available commentary gives the impression that either one or the other is true. The truth is much more messy and complicated. One organisation that's been given a very simple and straightforward narrative is RTE. And this is who I'm going to focus on because RTE is supposed to be a public service working in our interests. Because RTE is a state company, you know, they'll usually be pretty careful to use relatively unbiased neutral language to avoid emotive tones. So it's useful to look at what they're covering and what they aren't. A lot of the coverage from RTE has been based on has been focused on refugees from the conflict and drawn attention to efforts to accommodate and support them. If this was all RTE was doing, I'd have no issue with the coverage, but it isn't. Along with the very real stories of human suffering and grief and solidarity, there's an interwoven narrative of good guys versus bad guys, the forces of good versus the ultimate evil, the West versus Russia. The source I've mainly drawn from is uh, RTE Radio 1. One day in early March, couple of weeks after Russia invaded, there was a piece on the Claire Byrne show about disinformation. Mark Little from the organisation Kinzen was there to inform the public on how to recognise Russian propaganda and to give a simple outline of their strategy. Kinzen are a social media intelligence company who focus on disinformation and harmful content. The host Claire Byrne very much set the tone of the interview in stating that a key part of the Russian strategy has been to shut down channels of information. So they have people who can't get the facts like we can and are also being exploited by the Kremlin to try and whip up this feeling that this is a national moment of urgency. To close off the Russian public from any alternative narratives about the invasion. She also identified the social media app Telegram as a potential avenue of disinformation and propaganda. Little identified Putin as a pioneer of disinformation. Now this is a guy that's former KGB. Disinformation was excelled at by the Soviets. He has been the godfather of modern information warfare. And this is a highly contestable claim given the USA's long history of cultural warfare, not to mention the whole weapons of mass destruction fiasco that launched the invasion of Iraq, which George Bush recently joked about. The decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh. 
The Obama administration even went as far as replacing the term war on terror with overseas contingency operation. Now that's even more obscure than Putin insisting on calling the invasion a special military operation. You know, at least he still uses the word military to describe it. Now, Mark Little in this interview did address the weapons of mass destruction lie at one point, but he states that the scale and speed of disinformation today is much faster and more widespread because of social media than it was in 2003, and that's that's obviously true. The way he put it was, there's a quote now, people know, people know they can hijack democratic media and use it against democracy. By democratic media, I'm assuming he's referring to the capacity for social media to be utilised by people on the ground. Now, this idea of Western social media being democratic is a problematic one, and I'll get into that in a second. He went on to identify three internets. He said that the internet we're familiar with is free and open, our internet, while the Chinese internet is totally state-controlled. He calls it the Chinese state surveillance model, and he says the third one is Russia, somewhere in between the two, and he fears that by excluding Russia, a new digital iron curtain, as he put it, referring to the Iron Curtain of the Cold War, the separation of the Soviet bloc from the Western bloc, the capitalist bloc, is forming and cutting Russia off from the rest of the world. Now, he doesn't explicitly blame Russia and China for this. You know, he, he did say that he feared that by us excluding Russia, this would happen. Uh, but he did claim that our internet, the internet run entirely by private, mostly US-based countries, is democratic, free and open. And because the host, Claire Byrne, referred to Russia shutting down channels of information, the whole piece paints this picture of a free and open West and a scary, undemocratic, controlling East. What he neglected to mention, or rather what Claire Byrne, the interviewer, neglected to ask him about, was what, was what his background is. And he himself used to work for Twitter, and several other members of his organisation, Kinzen, have been employed by Facebook, Google and other social media tech giants in the past. Now this is the same Facebook, currently called Meta, that recently changed its hate speech policy to allow people to call for attacks on Russians. Now not just criticisms and calls for resistance to the, crush, to the Russian army, but calls for violence against Russians in general. Right? The same, this is the same tech companies that currently receive billions of dollars yearly from the United States Departments of Defense and Homeland Security. Research carried out by the campaign group Big Tech Sells War shows that the US Department of Defense and Departments of Homeland Security spend billions each year on contracts with companies like Google and Facebook to develop technologies for them to use. There's also a revolving door of personnel at the highest levels between these government departments and private tech companies. Check out BigTechSellsWar.com for more details about that. It's, it's fascinating. And the idea that our Western internet tied up as it is with American financial capitalism and the military-industrial complex is democratic, is totally farcical. It's completely privatised. He's correct to identify the Chinese internet as a state surveillance model, but by that same logic, the internet we have here in the West is the corporate surveillance model. The social media that we use daily is constantly harvesting our information, violating our privacy in a thousand tiny ways in order to sell us stuff, but also to manipulate our emotions and behaviour. I spoke in earlier episodes of this series about how algorithms work to evoke emotional responses from us. There's nothing democratic about the corporate top-down structures of Facebook, Google, etc. You know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, of who I'm no fan, 
are arguably more democratic than these corporations because at least the Chinese people have the possibility to join the party and vote on who climbs the ranks in the party. Nobody votes for who gets to work high up in Google or Facebook. I mean, like a small board of directors do, but like the people of America and the people of Europe and the people of Ireland who are being manipulated by these companies don't get to vote for who makes decision, the decisions at the highest levels there. You know, the leaders of those corporations call the shots. They have total control. They also have such vast wealth that they have more clout on the world stage now than a lot of nation states do at this point. Before you arrive at your opinion, do you know where your information is coming from? RTE News. The truth matters. It's important to point out at this stage that the Russian state TV station Russia Today has been banned from broadcasting in Ireland. RTE tries to cultivate an image of being an impartial observer, of being concerned with the truth. Indeed, RTE has a reasonably good reputation when it comes to factual news reporting, basic fact reporting. But the picture painted of reality that we get as the consumers of the news doesn't just come from the short news segments played two or three times daily, but from the commentary and editorial content throughout the day. RTE cannot claim to be an impartial observer to this while allowing guys like Mark Little to voice their observations without asking any challenging questions about their own conflicts of interest. And the point here isn't that Mark Little and Kinzen are evil, you know, I'm sure they believe that they're doing the right thing, and I acknowledge that the work they do is in, is in many respects beneficial. And he's correct when he states that the Russian state are reasonably successfully utilising the internet to spread their narrative, which is manifesting as some conspiracy theories among the left and partially truthful, partially false counter-narratives painting the Russian army as liberators rather than as invaders. The point, though, is that they're coming very much from within the Western sphere of influence, from within the corporate capitalist world. And these aren't just vague descriptors, but words that acknowledge the biases and limitations of the organisation. If we are being truthful, we must recognise that the very same methods of information control that the Russian government employ are employed by Western governments and are employed by the Irish government in service to their big daddy, the US. So while it's true that the Russian public get a limited look at the truth, so do we. You heard one of RTE's slogans there, the truth matters. You'll notice a common theme among centrist media affiliated with the political establishment in the West of claiming some grand goal like that, truth or democracy. The Washington Post, one of the most popular US news outlets, has a slogan, democracy dies in darkness. The Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, the second richest man in the world. Not a figure you'd associate with democracy, the second richest oligarch in the world. If the treatment of Amazon workers by their employer is anything to go by, he's not a man who cares very much about democracy. They're also one of the publications that pushed most heavily for an escalation with Russia before the invasion even began. I'll talk a bit more about that later. If a media outlet is really working in service to democracy and in pursuit of the truth, that should become apparent in its content and shouldn't have to be reinforced through sloganeering. But if you take the time to look at these companies, they always come up lacking. We should demand these things from our media, that they be consistent and honest and thorough in their reporting and analysis. You heard a clip of Ryan Tuberty at the start of the episode calling Putin the enemy of the entire world. Now, it was a throwaway offhand remark, but it does reflect fairly concisely the position of RTE and the story it wants to tell. But is it true? The reality of the situation is that a large portion of the world, not the majority of states, but the states that represent the majority of the world's population, do not consider Putin an enemy. 
Most of the Global South, the Middle East and Asia have condemned the invasion and called for peace, but they have not taken a hostile stance to Putin. Many of these countries are far more worried about the US, NATO and other European powers, and they have good reason to be, given the ongoing extraction of wealth by European and American companies and the consistent threat of American violence if they don't comply. Mr. Al Mukhtar, a great many British and American servicemen have so far in their, this war lost their lives given the ultimate sacrifice. They should be given credit, shouldn't they, for trying to get Saddam Hussein out of Iraq. I know you don't support Saddam Hussein. Your family don't like Saddam Hussein. At least the British and Americans are doing more than you, the Iraqi people, succeeded in doing. They are trying to get rid of Saddam Hussein. One of the harmful narratives that has been propagated by RTE and other mainstream sources is that the USA are morally solid and reliable, the government, that they are interested in protecting democracy, not just their own interests. That clip I just played is from primetime in 2003. She was interviewing an Iraqi lawyer whose family was in Iraq at the time while US planes were bombing them back into the Stone Age. Could you imagine an RTE presenter putting questions like that to a Ukrainian person? Of course they wouldn't. But when it's the US that are doing the bombing, well, it must be justifiable. Analysis of RTE's coverage at that time suggested that they tended to downplay Iraqi casualties, to exclude Iraqi voices, and to consistently put forward the American and British perspectives. British and Americans perceive Saddam Hussein not just to be a threat to his own people, but to be a threat to their people because of the weapons he allegedly has. Surely they have a right to go against him? There's an obvious parallel to be drawn there between the British and American justification for their invasion of Iraq and Putin's justification for his invasion of Ukraine. Legitimate security interests. Why do RTE value one state and not the other? For quite some time now, the European Union leadership and, uh, has been working with the United States uh, and with other like-minded countries who value democracy, who value sovereignty and, and, and um, inter territorial integrity of states. There you have it, folks. Back in the present day, that was Michal Martin on the News at One in April uh, explaining why we ally ourselves with the US, why we value the US's security interests over Russia's security interests. Because the US value the territorial integrity of other places. The academic and journalist Harry Brown drew attention to radio reports at the time that the Iraqi government were pumping out propaganda about hospitals being attacked. In the same report, RTE acknowledged that hospitals were being attacked and civilians were being killed, but they focused on calling it propaganda and how the Iraqi government are using this information to their advantage. They're talking about it in kind of like a, a sinister way. So when the Iraqis drew attention to the deaths of their people, it was propaganda. But now it's not propaganda when Ukrainians quite rightly draw attention to the deaths of their people. You know, it's quite rightly identified as a tragedy. Now, are these double standards an indication that RT have morally reoriented themselves over the last 20 years and now they're paying closer attention to what's happening on the ground? I don't think so, because if it was, they would have given them much more airtime to the butchery going on in Palestine, Yemen and Syria. The reason, I would argue, that the... But the reason for this, this disparity in coverage of the two conflicts, Iraq and Ukraine, is that the Irish state are politically subservient to the US, and so their media wing, RTE, will toe the line and paint a friendly picture of their big daddy. It's horrible. It was, uh, this is Putin's war. It was unprovoked.
unwarranted, and Putin chose violence over peace. And what is happening to the Ukrainian people is a travesty. Um, what is the positive that has come out of it, if you could say that, is how strong uh, all of our allies and partners have been in unity against this. There's an overall picture being painted here of the West and its allies fighting on behalf of democracy and justice, fighting the totalitarian East. One government that's being rehabilitated through this media campaign is the Polish state. There have been many reports on RTE of the kindness shown to Ukrainian refugees crossing their border and tear-jerking stories of people leaving packed buggies at the train station for Ukrainian mothers coming in. What's left out of the picture is their 350 million euro fence along the border with Belarus complete with cameras and motion sensors, or the fact that Frontex, the EU private security company who's, who policed the borders of the EU, are headquartered in Warsaw. They were recently awarded a 100 million euro contract to an Israeli arms company for surveillance drones to monitor the borders. The same drones used by the IDF in Gaza, incidentally. These aren't being used on Ukrainian refugees, but in Yemeni, Syrian and other nationalities who are fleeing the long-lasting conflicts in their own countries. And while the Russian invasion was ongoing, NATO member state Turkey launched a new offensive on the Kurdish population in the south of the region. We don't hear about them much though, and when we do, they're called terrorists. There's currently two Kurdish men on hunger strike in refugee camps on the Polish border. But RTU doesn't tell us about that. Why are they drawing our attention to one thing and not the other? Well, now reports tonight of a headlong flight of refugees from Basra, and in a moment we'll be talking to the head of UNICEF in Iraq. But first the question, who should, who indeed can meet the humanitarian needs of the Iraqi people? In the three months of RT Radio 1 shows that I trawled through, I didn't once hear anyone ask the question, who should meet the needs of Ukrainian refugees? In their influential book, Manufacturing Consent, written back in the late 80s, Noam Chomsky and Edward Harmon outlined the five filters of mass media, otherwise known as the propaganda model. These filters are characteristics of mass media organisations that filter out important information that limit what news we hear about. The five filters are as follows. Number one, ownership. Number two, advertising. Number three, elite sources. Number four, flack. And number five, the common enemy. We can use these filters as starting points for thinking about the media we're consuming. Who owns it and who pays for it? What are its primary sources? Using the example of RTE, we can see stark examples of this in the recent coverage of the Ukraine war. The majority of voices you'll hear giving opinions on the situation are American or British. And this is in line with their usual policy of simply parroting whatever government ministers in Ireland say. When reporting on local issues, you'll hear a brief soundbite from a government official. When it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you'll mostly be hearing the voices of American, or in some cases, British officials and academics. Now, there's obvious questions to be asked about that. I'm, I'm not going to try and deal in too much detail with the moral question here, which is, why are we listening to a government that has a terrible record on war crimes make commentary on another government's war crimes? Why should a representative of the United States of America be listened to or their judgment trusted given what they are responsible for in Fallujah, Basra, Guantanamo Bay, Baghdad, etc.? There are many arguments to be made 
about the American government's direct involvement in the Ukrainian crisis, the, the Russian invasion, and what responsibility they hold there. Now, obviously, the Russian government hold ultimate responsibility for doing the in, for carrying out the invasion, but it's clear that due to their stated goals and their leadership role in NATO, the US, I mean, their, their long history of meddling in other countries, and due to the stated aims of their politicians, that the US have a strong involvement in the conflict. Ukrainian activists have for years been drawing attention to the agricultural land markets, where foreign capital, mostly American funds, are buying up huge tracts of land for development, locking out the Ukrainian people. Businesses attached to high-ranking politicians in both the Republican and Democratic parties have been skimming money from the Ukrainian economy through their business interests there for, for decades now. International financial institutions like the IMF have placed strict limits on social spending. Elimination of fuel subsidies, causing higher prices for gas, heating and electricity and transportation. Uh, sweeping spending cuts on health, education and child assistance benefits. A major reform of the pension system. Um, back in March 2021, the Atlantic Council, a NATO-affiliated think tank, prepared a policy document for the new president, Biden, called Biden and Ukraine, a strategy for the new administration. Some of its key recommendations were, quote, working with Congress to increase military assistance to Ukraine to $500 million per year. Another quote, deepen Ukraine's integration with NATO by establishing a permanent US military presence in the country. These were stated recommendations, knowing full well that this would increase tensions with Russia. Some of this funding went directly to Nazi groups in Ukraine, like the Azov Battalion, more on them later. The US have a long history of this, of funding far rights in Europe. Look up Operation Gladio if you want to learn more about that. They've gotten up to similar shenanigans in Syria under Operation Timber Sycamore and the Train and Equip programme, which resulted in groups like the Al-Nusra Front, the rebranded Al-Qaeda, gaining increased weaponry and support. But you don't hear about that stuff from RTE. We didn't hear much about Ukraine until Russia invaded even though the signs were there for years, as though the crisis just manifested overnight. My central point here is that the main function of the media is to tell us, the receptive public, what is important. Not to tell us about important events, but to tell us what events are important. To tell us what to care about, and to ignore that which they don't want us to care about. They know they can weaponize human decency and empathy to their own ends. The Russian public live within an opaque propaganda bubble, but so do we. The propaganda bubble of the Anglophone world, the US, the UK, NATO. Former NATO soldier and author Joe Glenton has described the Western media as war horny. The mainstream media in the United States is perhaps the most extreme example of this. A study done by Mint Press News on the media in the months leading up to the invasion found that Quote, 90% of recent opinion articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, all highly respected newspapers, have taken a hawkish view on the conflict with anti-war voices few and far between. Most of the opinion pieces were arguing for a, for a get-tough stance against Russia and for deploying US troops along the Russian border, pretty much in line with the Atlantic Council's recommendations. This was in January, before the invasion started. The Wall Street Journal even went as far as to argue that the environmental movement has been infiltrated by Russia. We're against new coal mines and fracking because Putin wants us dependent on his gas. This argument hints at what the US's real interests are. They have nothing to do with security and stability in Europe and everything to do with controlling resources and ensuring that we will buy what they are selling. Since the invasion started, 
The CEO of American arms company Raytheon, Greg Hughes, stated, quote, I fully expect we're going to see some benefit from the Ukraine crisis, end quote. The arms industry, one of the most profitable industries in the world, is based most, mostly in the US and also in Russia. Incidentally, uh, Raytheon used to have a factory up in Derry, but they were forced to close the plant in 2010 following extensive protests by the Derry Anti-War Coalition. The protests were kicked off in response to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which Raytheon weaponry was being used in. A group of activists broke into the offices, uh, destroyed some computers and occupied the office for the day. Look up the Raytheon 9 if you'd like to learn more about that. The propaganda model prompts us to look closely at who's given a voice and who's not. Why are UK and US academics and politicians being given a platform to speak to the nation on this matter? RT is the state broadcaster, so in a way it makes sense that representatives of the state or ally states will be frequently featured. But is that right? Like, if, if we truly believe that a free and open media is essential to a functioning democracy, is that any kind of guarantee that we'll be given a whole, accurate and truthful view of what's happening? The filters of ownership, advertising and elite sources ensure that only a very narrow selection of voices will be heard and that any deviation from that selection will be a risk for the company. Being owned by the state, they have to toe the state line. Reliant as they are on government sources, they can't upstage or snub any of their usual sources for fear of losing them and the exclusive and latest access to hot, sexy information. If you look at Russia's news agencies, you see the same thing. It's even more imbalanced there because the state owns pretty much all the media. Yeah, what, 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 what are you on about bigger picture all the time? You looking well, at the? Are you look, hang on. Are you looking at? Are you looking at the pictures on your television or in your newspaper? Did you look uh, at? Fourth filter, flack, essentially means that any journalist or dissenting voice that goes against the mainstream narrative will suffer as a result. We can see a stark example of this in any mainstream media article written about Claire Daly or Mick Wallace. Daly has been accused of going on Chinese TV and cozying up to the government. What they neglect to mention is that while on Chinese state TV, Daly spent most of her time challenging the Chinese government on their inaction in relation to Russia, asking why they weren't using their influence to broker peace talks. A microcosmic example of flack in action is Liveline, hosted by Joe Duffy. It's a call-in show where listeners come on to debate whatever controversial topic is popular that day. Directly after the segment I discussed earlier, where Mark Little from Kinzen outlined how Russia media is all propaganda, Liveline opened up with a young man who was going to Ukraine to join the army to fight against Russia. Literally 20 seconds after the theme music, we heard detailed instructions on how to sign up for the Ukrainian army. That's not propaganda though, that's just a human interest story. Duffy then brought on two, ca two callers who were supportive of this young man, calling him admirable and brave. The conversation was free-flown and tinged with sadness. There, there wasn't really any overt war glorification going on, you know, the guy who called in who was going over there sounded genuine. You know, he sounded to me like his heart was in the right place. You know, in some way, I, you know, I can admire his bravery, of course. But w w when the next two callers were brought on, people who didn't agree with this perspective uh, and who didn't agree that him going to shoot at Russians was the best way he could use his skills to help, um, they characterised the segment as war propaganda. This is where we can hear Duffy come into his own. His manner instantly changes into that of an attack dog. He changes from empathetic, allowing the speaker room to express themselves, into a vicious kind of cutting, into a vicious kind of approach, cutting the speakers off. Um, they're very like just sharp and like aggressive way of in of interacting. You know, deliberately misrepresenting what they're saying in the least charitable ways possible, and constantly interrupting them to challenge them. Um, 
if you listen to Liveline a few times, you'll notice that this is a common tactic he uses. The show is presented as a call-in show, supposedly representing the voice of the people, but it's very clearly orchestrated to reinforce their editorial position. In another episode of Liveline, Duffy even went as far as to compare any of the TDs in the Dáil who went against the government line on Ukraine to fascists. He compared them to the Irish who went over to fight alongside Franco in the Spanish Civil War. The fifth filter is the common enemy. In the original book, Manufacturing Consent, the fifth filter was simply called anti-communism, which stated that the mainstream media had as a goal the defamation of communist governments and political groups. Since then, the theory has developed to include the broad idea of a bad guy, the common enemy of the people. So, Putin, or the entire Russian nation, are now the common enemy. You remember Facebook's policy that I talked about previously, the change in policy to allow hate speech against Russians. Before that, the states had the war on terror, or the war on drugs. In Ireland, we could identify the Republican movement as a common enemy, perhaps. You know, in, in, in their coverage of the Shell to Sea campaign, RTE and other mainstream media sources consistently downplayed the level of violence perpetrated by the state and their violent wing, the Gardaí, while slandering the activists, pointing to any links to republicanism there was, and in some cases just making them up. The diva of the Shell to Sea protest, Maura is also the pin-up girl of every sect of the republican movement. Now, I'm sure some of will be reacting to this fairly reasonably asking, what, like, Putin ordered the invasion, of course he's a bad guy, why wouldn't we view him as an enemy? And now, I'm not arguing that Putin's actually a good guy, I'm not even asking for balance, you know, for us to hear the voices of Russian politicians as well as the Yanks. What I'm saying is that there's no good reason for us to be following the lead of the US, or to be making a hero out of Zelensky and the Ukrainian state. Incredible admiration for the man. Um, when, when, when people, histo historians define nationhood and identity, to me, uh, President Zelensky is almost personifying Ukrainian nationhood right now. Yeah. That was Taoiseach Michal Martin on The Late Late Show, saying possibly one of the most insulting things I've ever heard anyone say about Ukrainian people. We need to remember that Zelensky is an actor. Before he was the president, he played a president in a TV show. Zelensky's government have banned left-wing organisations and have made national heroes of far-right nationalists such as Stefan Bandera, who was a Nazi collaborator in, during World War II and was the leader of a Ukrainian nationalist organisation which worked with the Nazis uh, to create a fascist state in Ukraine. They're also currently systematically rolling back on workers' rights. In a country where 67% of households are living in poverty, the military budget has quadrupled over the last decade, alongside massive cuts to health, education and the civil service. As well as banning left-wing groups through so-called decommunisation laws, they're also decommunising in other ways by cutting away at the welfare state, which was supposed to be enshrined in their constitution. They're reducing fines for employers who break labour laws, they're deregulating occupational health and safety, they're cutting public services and privatising healthcare. Zelensky also signed a decree closing all non-state media, allowing only one station to report news, citing the importance of a, quote, unified information policy under martial law. But here's how Claire Byrne defined it. After the four main Ukrainian television channels decided to work together to create one 24-7 marathon news show. Doesn't that sound nice? They're framing this as a war effort, as a protective temporary action for the state, but in reality, 
This is part of a process that Zelensky's government has been following since long before the invasion. The far-right movement in Ukraine, exemplified by Azov Battalion and right sector, are relatively small, but they certainly have an influence on government politics. They're more than willing to use violence and are clearly utilising that reputation to get things done. So we have a situation now where there's union reps who, while taking up weapons to defend their country, are still struggling to defend the workers they represent from these government policies. The heroic imagery we're seeing here of Zelensky is a far cry from the reality of his government. We can condemn Putin, and of course we should, and support the people resisting him in Ukraine, and also crucially within Russia, but I don't think it's necessarily in our interest to view him as a common enemy, that we should fall in behind the US and the UK, who certainly carry a lot of responsibility for destabilising the situation in Ukraine. But this is very much the narrative that RTE are pushing. If Putin is the ultimate bad leader, the bad guy, and the Russian government are a bad government, Zelensky and his American and European backers, backers are all just unproblematically fantastic. Don't dare talk about the many regressive and socially damaging policies that his government are now enacting to the detriment of the people he's meant to represent. Don't talk about how he's repressing the left and don't talk about how he's under the influence of fascists. And don't dare mention any past crimes of the United States who are the protectors of democracy around the world and their complicity in creating the situation which is causing the deaths of thousands of Ukrainian civilians and Russian conscripts. Ukraine needs our help to win today and they will still need our help when the war is over. As President Biden says, our security assistance has gone directly to the front lines of freedom and to the fearless and skilled Ukrainian fighters who are standing in the breach. This is how the Irish government and by extension RTE function. For years the state have been allowing US warplanes to land and refuel in Shannon Airport. According to flight logs studied by Shannon Watch, around 3 million soldiers have passed through Shannon Airport since 2003. Many thousands have died and suffered as a result of these actions. If we're anti-war, if we want to help refugees by preventing them from becoming refugees in the first place, if we're on the side of the working people of the world, then we need to stop turning a blind eye to Shannon Airport being used as a staging ground for the actions of a rogue military. The main point here is that by rallying around the common enemy and creating a common hero, so Putin being the common enemy, Zelensky being the hero, the mainstream media limit it. They limit what kind of discussion is allowed. Any attempt to bring up information that conflicts with their simple bad guy, good guy story results in accusations of being a Putin apologist or whatever. There was tabloid headlines here recently that said Russian threat to nuke Ireland, I think it was in the Sun or something like that. And there was indeed a segment much publicised on the Russian TV station showing the potential effects of a nuclear war in Europe. But it wasn't a direct threat. It was a defensive statement. They never said, we're going to nuke Ireland or the British Isles or anywhere for that matter. They said, if we are attacked with nuclear weapons, we will respond and this is what it'll look like. This is what our weapons can do. Now, it's easy to argue in this context that the man is a maniac. But let's not forget that the only government to ever actually use nuclear weapons was the government of the United States of America. Given that fact, is it not perfectly rational for a government like Russia to say, here, if you bomb us, we'll bomb you back and then we're all fucked? It's very difficult at this time to make the point that Putin is not in fact an unhinged madman, but is actually a rational political leader acting in concert with other politicians in what they believe to be their national interest, responding to external threats. Because he's the ultimate bad guy, and the US and NATO are heroes. That's not the same thing as saying he's right. Saying he's rational doesn't mean he isn't despotic. I mean, this is a regime that recently imprisoned some teenagers for, you know, teenagers, they were called themselves anarchists, but they were kids, like teenagers. 
And what they did was they built a replica of the FSB headquarters in Minecraft. Minecraft is a video game, for those of you who don't know, most of you probably do. The FSB are like the, the continuation of the KGB, they're the Russian Secret Service. And these teenage anarchists built a replica of their headquarters in Minecraft and set it on fire. <laughs> they were accused of plotting a terrorist attack. One of them recently had their sentence extended from five years to nine years. He's not even 18 yet. So I'm certainly not saying that I support the Russian government. I mean, one of Putin's stated reasons for invading Ukraine was supposedly to denazify Ukraine. But this, that's a bit rich coming from an administration whose police regularly kidnap and torture left-wing activists who collaborate with neo-Nazi groups like Vosky uh, Obras to crack down on anti-fascists and assimilate the Nazis. Of course, the fascist movement in both countries have strong historic links to each other. So I'm not trying to defend Putin or the Russian state. I'm simply saying it's in no way peculiarly evil. It's just more overt in its totalitarianism than the US government is. Western states are just as good at controlling what is and isn't acceptable to talk about. Even better, actually, through leveraging the media. I haven't done a comprehensive study of all Western English language media covering Ukraine, but I have watched a lot of clips from RTE, BBC, Al Jazeera, various American news channels like CNBC, etc. And what I've noticed is that how they look at Ukraine has changed significantly between their coverage of the Donbass conflict up until last year and their coverage of the current invasion by Russia of wider Ukraine. Before, most Western media highlighted Azov Battalion, shining a light on their nationalist and fascist policies and principles. I won't give a summary of their ideology here, as there's already a plenty of work on that, but you can look them up online. They're a fascist group, basically. But what's striking is that since the Russian invasion has started, news media, especially in Britain and the USA, has ceased referring to them as fascists. Now they're simply nationalists or patriots. They've been whitewashed, in other words. You can see a clear example of this in how the Atlantic Council have discussed them. The Atlantic Council, that NATO-affiliated think tank I talked about earlier, They've pivoted from calling them Nazis to arguing that they should be considered, that they shouldn't be considered terrorists, that they're simply nationalists. Why is this? Why would Western media, in particular the US and the UK media, want to first draw attention to Ukrainian fascists and even potentially exaggerate their presence and then deny their existence? I've been paying close attention to what left-wing activists in the Ukraine have been saying online since the start of the invasion. And I've also been paying close attention to Ukrainian government policy changes. The Ukrainian government have been systematically criminalising and banning left-wing political parties. It seems that in many ways Ukraine is a hostile environment for leftists, which would certainly lend credence to the idea that Zelensky, Jewish as he may be, is under the sway of far-right influence. He has, I mean, he's appeared in video addresses to different governments with members of the Azov Battalion with him, the far-right militia, who have been integrated into the National Guard. He's also, in his address to the Israeli parliament, stated plainly that he does not want Ukraine to be a liberal state. He wants it to be like Israel. Israel, which is of course a Jewish state, is also run by a far-right government. They're an ethno-nationalist government. On the other hand, most Ukrainian leftists that I've come across who are directly communicating online have all said that the influence of the far-right in Ukraine is being massively overplayed by the Western left and by the media in the West, and that in reality, Russia and their neighbouring Belarus are far more hostile places for leftists than Ukraine. And indeed, there seems to be many political exiles, left-wing political exiles from both of those countries, living in Ukraine, some of whom are now taking active part in the resistance to the Russian invasion. Who to believe? I'm inclined to believe the words of people who are actually there on the ground. Why would a Ukrainian anti-fascist underplay the influence of fascism in Ukraine? Doesn't make sense. 
Now, they're not saying that the far right, the fascists, the full-blown Nazis have no influence. They, they clearly acknowledge them as a threat and, of course, have been resisting their efforts for years. They simply say that they're no more of a threat than in a good many other European countries. So the question stuck in my mind is, why would the Western media flip like this from potentially ex exaggerating the existence of Nazis in Ukraine, which then became one of Putin's stated reasons for invading, to downplaying or even outright denying their existence? Could it be that there are political forces at play in the UK and USA that are not interested in international stability, cohesion or solidarity? Could it be that there are reactionary right-wing forces at play in these regions of the Anglophone world, such as the Republican Party and their many militant fringe followers, not to mention, of course, the Democratic Party and the CIA, who don't even try to hide their meddling in other countries' affairs, and the Tory Party, who enjoy the enthusiastic support of many far-right groups and Brexiteers, and the increasingly right-wing Labour Party who have shaped mainstream politics and therefore mainstream media to such a degree that their destabilising, corrosive and war-horny agenda has once again climaxed in the spilling of innocent human blood. Now you sharp-eared listeners who have listened to the full Psychic Self-Defence series will recognise that as a list of rhetorical questions. Obviously, I think that's the case. Not that there's some grand conspiracy planned by a secret sect of right-wing ol oligarchs, it's simply the inevitable result of a political movement based around rugged individualism, free market capitalist economics and supremacist nationalism. We live in a world where social media companies play a deep-rooted role in mediating our information sharing and communication. It's now known that they rely on psychologically manipulative techniques to keep us addicted to their platforms and scrolling through our news feeds. They also deliberately show us the stories most likely to get a rise out of us. At the same time, while they provide us with a powerful tool, the flip side of that is that there's no quality control. It's become increasingly difficult to judge the veracity of the information we're seeing. Alongside social media, the mainstream media has been gradually drifting away from factual reporting towards public relations and advertising. Depending on what source you check, there's currently between four and six times more PR professionals working in the media industry than there are journalists. Think about what that means. A journalist's job is to investigate a story and report on it and maybe offer some of their own analysis or opinion. A PR professional's job is to try to convince us of something. To put it less politely, it's to manipulate us. This shift has happened largely as a result of the boom in online news sharing. Staff and salary cuts prevail in traditional news sectors, whereas corporate coffers are ever-expanding. I came across a site called Muckrack, which is a resource for PR pros to get in touch with journalists who are more likely to be sympathetic towards whatever group they're working for. The name muckrack is a deeply ironic name for this as the term muckracker or muckraker originally referred to investigative journalists who would rake up some muck and then dish the dirt on corrupt public officials or companies or whatever. Real journalism. It's a sad irony that this company took that name to apply to their business of basically linking up propagandists with easily led journalists. We need to ask, is this what we want from media? Do we want a media that is trying to change our minds and convince us one way or another? Or do we want a media that has our interests at heart, that's trying to inform us? It's hardly a surprise that more and more people are finding it difficult to trust the media when so much of it is designed to manipulate rather than inform. I think the term war horny is a fair descriptor of how the media functions. If they have sensationalist news stories to report like this, they'll sell papers, they'll sell subscriptions, and it, it, it feeds into social media's business model as well. It keeps us engaged, it keeps us arguing, liking, 
it feeds our, our outrage, it, 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 it keeps us using their platforms, which gives them more advertising revenue. The conclusion is basically, you really need to think about what it is you're consuming. The bias I focused on here was that of RTE, but all media is biased, no matter what source you're looking at. You'll be getting a particular worldview. And it can be extremely difficult to judge what's true or what's false without seeking out other sources. The more we're exposed to a set of ideas or a type of language or a moral framework, the more it changes us, even if we're thinking about it critically ourselves alone. Gradually, in small but significant ways, this, you know, this can happen without us even realising. If we consume only a small number of media sources, our worldview will be necessarily limited, our exposure to ideas will be limited, and our picture of what's happening in the world will be narrower and fuzzier. Just think about what you're watching and why you're watching it or what you're listening to or reading or whatever and why. Try to keep an awareness of how it's changing you. It's like, it's like food, right? It's important to pay some amount of attention to what you're eating to make sure that you're getting the balance of the, of the food you need. You know, make sure you're getting all the necessary nutrients, information from the different food groups, media sources. As well, food is often better when shared and the same is true for news and media in general. Don't just passively consume, but engage. Talk about it with your friends. In real life, not on social media, in real life, face to face. Explore it and really find out what people think. If we all just sit back and let news flow into our minds, react to it in the moment, and then carry it around subconsciously, without critically reflecting on it with other people, we risk being swallowed by the worldview of a small number of those most dominant among the apes we call humans. If we don't do that, if we don't critically engage with the news, if we just accept the dominant stories and follow the leaders we choose from the available cast of characters, we'll miss out on the material fact that we as a species, as a class, as a clan, have revolutionary power, and we can change what direction the dominant political forces of the day are dragging us in. We need to demand or create for ourselves a media that will work to tell us the truth about what is happening in the world, and to help the general public learn and analyse world events. You're, you absolutely can critically talk about this stuff while still caring and still supporting the people on the ground. RTE and the other big media companies are already in the process of moving on to the next hot topic. You know, Ukraine was all you'd hear about on RTE Radio 1 for the first two months or so, but around the beginning of May, coverage started to drift off a bit. You know, it's still there, but it's not nearly as prevalent as it was. And the war didn't necessarily decrease in intensity, really, yet the new cycle just moved on. Yet that's not real care. That's not solidarity, though. They report on and present whatever will keep the audience numbers up so they can better sell to advertisers. Then they move on. You know, that's it. So the strong men in the East and the West will keep on waving their inflated warheads at each other, but we don't have to pick one or the other to support. We can, if we choose, direct our attention along the curvature of the earth, along the ground level, to the people who share our interests. The late Padre O'Donnell, a socialist republican activist and author from County Donegal, once said that after visiting the Conference of Socialist Peasants in Bulgaria, he said he realised that he as a culture, well he didn't call himself that, him as a, as a countryman, he had much more in common with the peasantry of Bulgaria than he did with the urban people of his own country. And a lot more in common than he did with the upper classes of his own country. We share a great many common needs and wants with the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia. A safe, secure place to live and to thrive. How do we secure that for ourselves and for each other? RTE don't want you to ask that question. So that's it for part seven, and that's it for now at least for the Psychic Self-Defense series. This series on critical thinking and uh, media literacy, I suppose, 
has been my response to the COVID crisis. I, when lockdown started happening, I switched the format from being interview-based and platforming campaigns, visiting people, to basically just me in my room, spending too much time on the internet, probably learning about stuff, trying to develop my critical thinking skills, and then sharing that exploration with you. Um, but now during the summer, I'm going to travel the country and speak to people from local environmentalist groups, different political campaigners and researchers, and then I'll present those interviews in a, a new series, which I hope to have out sometime in early autumn. I'm not totally sure about that yet, but um, if you want to get updates on that, you can follow Turning Earth on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and if you want to talk more about any of the stuff that's come up during the series, if you've got any criticisms or questions, or you want to have a discussion about any of this stuff, uh, you can reach out to me directly on either of those platforms or at, uh, by email on at turningearthradio at gmail.com. As usual, this podcast has been sponsored by Glushucht, Glushucht for Global Justice, the environmental NGO, sound bunch of lads. And it's important for me to point out at this stage that uh, the, the views expressed here do not reflect the views of Glushucht or any member of Glushucht. They, uh, they, they take no editorial control over what I do or say here. Um, it's also funded by you, the people who listen to it. Uh, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash turning earth. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, uh, you can do that there. I decided when I first set up the Patreon a year or so ago that, oh geez, it must be two years ago now, that I, w- I wouldn't put any content behind a paywall so that when people donate to the Patreon they're not getting nothing extra uh, it's like because I don't see the point in gatekeeping any of this the reason I'm making this podcast cause I, is because I'm talking about stuff that I think is important and I want to share with people so it, it, it doesn't make sense to me to put any of this behind uh, a paywall or anything like that but um, I'm going to roll back on that slightly the, the main podcast is going to be it's always going to be free it's always going to be online but as an extra bonus for people who are subscribed to the Patreon I'll be making recordings of political texts that I'm interested in. And I'm going to start that soon with a reading of Labour in Irish History by James Connolly. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, you'll get access to these recordings. I'm going to record maybe, start doing it possibly in July or August. And I'll make, I'll read one chapter a week and make them available each week. And then if there's enough interest, we can have maybe a discussion uh, amongst ourselves about it on the Patreon so if you subscribe on Patreon you'll get access to, to those recordings as well I will probably once the once the project is finished upload them uh, as as onto YouTube or something like that um, and if you if you really can't afford to subscribe and you just want to hear these recordings anyway give me a shout by email and I'll send them on to you it's no problem but if you can't afford even a couple of euros a month uh, you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash turn earth it'll make a big difference and it'll help an awful lot um, the more I can make the podcast financially self-sufficient the more I can focus on it uh, I work three days a week and the rest of my time is freelance work so if I can spend my time doing this instead of other work that would be class uh, but that's all for now and I will talk to you in the not too distant Slot. So